tuned in to the Community Cats Podcast. Ready? Let's go. Welcome to the Community Cats Podcast. I'm your host, Stacey LeBaron. I've been involved helping homeless cats for over 20 years with the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society. The goal of this podcast is to expose you to amazing people who are improving the lives of cats. I hope these interviews will help you learn how you can turn your passion for cats into action. And today we're speaking with Steve Dale. Steve is a certified animal behavior consultant, host of two nationally syndicated radio show, Steve Dale's Pet World and the Pet Minute. Together, they're heard on over 100 stations and is a special contributor and radio host, Steve Dale's Pet World on WGN Radio Chicago for over 25 years. And there is so much more to Steve's bio. We're going to hear about that throughout the show today. Steve, I'd like to welcome you to the show. Thank you. It's, it's great to be here. And congratulations on all the amazing work you've done. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate it. So first and foremost, I ask all of my guests, how did you become passionate about cats? Ricky. <laughs> that was a cat. And we had a dog. I promised to get back to cats. But we had a dog that did animal-assisted therapy. So this dog went to what was then called the Rehabilitation Institute of Chicago. My wife, Robin, took the dog. Uh, a miniature Australian shepherd who made kids primarily laugh. And, and we taught Lucy, the dog, to do all sorts of different behaviors. One day, Rob and my wife comes home and says, I'm bored. You need to teach Lucy, the dog, something else. So I don't know why, but I thought, I'm going to get a little kid's piano and teach our dog how to play the piano. I, again, have no idea why I thought. And this is going back about 22, 23 years or so. So when the Toys R Us or whatever it was brought home the little kid's piano, closed the door to the room so the dog and the cat could not come in and began the process of clicker training and what's called shaping the behavior. And we lift the paw a little bit, a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. We weren't playing the piano yet, but we were only five, 10 minutes into it. Uh, then into the room, because I did not close the door all the way, walks Ricky, the very young at that time, Devin Rex, he looks at me, looks at the dog, looks at the piano and goes, ping, 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 ping. And I thought, I've got a prodigy here. What am I fooling around with this dog for? So out goes the dog. Ricky stays in the room. And Ricky kind of taught me to teach him. I mean, this cat was so intuitive to what I wanted. And then before, I don't know, just a few months goes by, and we're out in the world because Ricky complained whenever we, the dogs, my wife and myself, would go out of the house and dare leave him behind. Neighbors would say, we live in a condo building. You have a baby screen. Uh, no, we don't have any babies. It was Ricky the cat. So we thought, we'll take Ricky with us. And Ricky loved it. And then I thought, oh, I could teach Ricky to sit, to come when called. I'll say it again. Cat, coming when called. Uh, to do all of these different things, to jump from that chair to that chair. I made up a little agility course in the house, literally to jump through a hula hoop. All these kinds of things, and all I'd have to do at some point in time, I, I dropped the clicker out of the picture, didn't even need to use treats anymore, though I always did to a point. I would just point at what I wanted, and, and somehow he understood. And when you work with an animal, whether it be a service dog, whether it be a bomb-sniffing dog, 
whether it be a, a dog that you're doing a, a dog sniff, like agility, or for that matter, a cat, when you are, or a sea lion, for those of you that have pet sea lions, if you are closer in touch with that animal, then you are a team. And intuitively, you begin to understand one another in a new and different way. So I learned that. But I also, oh my gosh, I didn't know cats can do that. And millions at that time, literally because of my reach, millions of people, because we put with me on TV stations, I work in radio. So it was easy enough for me to have a piano playing cat on the radio. Jumping through a hoop, you cannot see that on the radio. Piano playing, you can hear on the radio. And then TV stations called us. I mean, down the road, even Letterman called us. We didn't do Letterman. I can explain why in a moment. But I did all of this Animal Planet and, gosh, Japanese TV, TV from Taiwan, I remember, all these places. At that, now it would be, you go to YouTube, you see piano playing cats everywhere. But at that point in time, people didn't do things like that with their cats. They didn't take their cats on a leash and harness out of the house. One time, we're at the bank. Cat's on my shoulder. Ricky's on my shoulder. I go into the bank with the cat on my shoulder, on a leash and harness. Go inside and make a deposit of probably maybe a withdrawal. I don't know. And and walk out and the guard stops me. And I thought, oh, I'm busted. He looks at me and looks at the cat and says, that's in the Spielberg movie, right? And I thought, okay. I said, okay. And then right then Ricky went, Row! he said, oh, it's a toy that talks. I need to get that for my kids. Where did you get it from? And I may, I said, Toys R Us. What did I know? And I ran out of there, you know? So Ricky was an amazing, amazing cat. But I think, I let me rephrase that. I know all cats can do more than we give them credit for. So you, you've embarked you know, on feline behavior as well as animal behavior in, in general. Can you tell me a little bit how you got from Ricky into that towards like a fear-free orientation? Sure, and I'd love to talk about fear-free. But the next step, I have one more step in this Ricky story because it involves so much of what I do now. And that is uh, we're at the veterinary clinic and Ricky is diagnosed with feline hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. That's a long, nasty sounding thing, right? And it is potentially nasty. Now, having said that, we know today that lots of cats, I'll just say HCM, with HCM, actually live out a perfectly normal life. They don't know that they have this disease. And at the age of 18, succumb to kidney disease or a cancer or something else. But many cats, actually most cats, either die suddenly, it is the number one cause of sudden death in cats, or they have these clots that happen, and as a result, their back legs become paralyzed. Veterinarians can fix it, but it's very painful. So they rush to the veterinary clinic for this, uh, the emergency room, and after two or three, because if it happens once, it's going to happen likely, anyway, again and again and again, and at some point in time, it just becomes too expensive to keep doing, or to, it breaks your heart because the cat is in such pain even though it could be rectified, they're in pain, you know. So those cats are often at some point in time euthanized as a result of that. Or they go into heart failure, which can be treated to some degree, but there's no cure for it. So it's not a good disease, and it's a very, very common one. It is probably the number one, number one, number one cause of death between cats of about two years or so, three years, 
to about 10 years when all those things happen to senior cats, but this can happen to senior cats. Uh, so Ricky ultimately died at the age of two and a half, as I recall, of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Uh, the reason why we didn't do the Letterman show, by the way, is he was diagnosed at that time, and I would not travel. So I felt badly about that. I said, send a crew to Chicago, we'll do it. And they said, no, and we didn't. You know, uh, When Ricky died, I thought, this happens to too many cats. There's no cure, there's no treatment really or anything. Uh, so I need to do something about it. And that's when I began a fund called the Ricky Fund with what was then called the Women Feline Foundation. And by the way, I can give you a scoop. So in October, it is, uh, what is it called? There's a day that, it's not Cat Research Day, it's- There's Global Cat Day? No, we created this day for cats. And you can learn more at everycat.org. I can't believe I can't think of the name of this day, Dr. Vicki Thayer. It was her idea to do this. And every day we have a focus, and I'll talk about what this organization is, but every day we have a focus, and the focus this year is the Wizards of Park. And if you know anyone who has a cat and has had cats over the years, they may have had this happen to them, or maybe it's happened to you. Because as I say, this is incredibly, uh, the Wind Feline Foundation, which is the organization I began what is called the Wiki Fund, and we've raised a lot of money, hundreds of thousands, and I'm so grateful for that. And we've made a difference, and I can tell you about that difference. But this organization, if you have a cat, if you know a cat, if you've ever heard of the word cats, this organization has funded studies to support that cat and those cats whether it be cats that live outdoors in colonies and actually have a bond with the cats, surprisingly so, to some, uh, or whether it be your cat that you have at home, whether it be cats in shelters, whether it be a pedigree cat like Maine Coon or Lad Dog, or whether it be, like most cats, a little bit of everything, uh, domestic short hair, domestic long hair. All of those cats have benefited everything we know, really. And I can go through a whole list. So feline leukemia, I'll just give you one example, but I really can give you literally hundreds. Feline leukemia, no one knew back in the day what it was. This is before my time. It was called the feline lymph node disease. I didn't know what to call it. I just knew it affected lymph nodes in some ways. Then it was identified as feline leukemia. They understood the disease process. It's a retrovirus. Here's how it works. And from that, the Morris Animal Foundation actually came in and created a vaccine. So that is just one example. What we know about HCM, the disease I'm talking about, the heart disease I'm talking about, what we know was once funded by the Wiki Fund, actually, that I helped to create. And the result of that is, at least for two breeds for now with more coming, we can do simple genetic testing, just with a cheek swab test, to determine if a gene defect is there. It's not the end-all, be-all, but it's a start of breeders being able to say, because that disease is in part genetic, it's in part hereditary, meaning it, it has nothing to do with pedigree cats. It just runs in the family. And in part, it just spontaneously occurs for reasons we don't know. But for those that are related to pedigree cats, at least for those two breeds, now we can do and are doing something about it. We understand the disease better. We understand the incidence better. Do we have a magic pill yet? No. I, I, we need that. Wow. Very impressive. Ricky uh, really did a lot for so many cats really, you know, through, yeah, through the time yeah. that you had him. Well, he did, you're right. He did two things. He dispelled myths of what cats can be because I got mail. Oh, all right. Here's the story. 
We were at PetSmart or Petco because we did recitals at PetSmart or Petco. We did. And and uh, we were there and they put out, you know, just a table for Ricky's little piano, for the kid's piano. And he was going ding, 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 ding on the piano playing improvisation jazz. And then this guy comes up waving his arms above the cat like this. And I thought, is he a magician? Does he, what's he doing? So I said, at some point, what are you doing? Ricky didn't care. I said, what are you doing? He said, and he began to look up toward the ceiling at a pet smart or pet though, that's way up there, right? And he's looking up at the ceiling. I, what, what, what? He said, I'm looking for the strings that are hard to see. He thought it was a puppet because cats can't do that. Amazing, absolutely amazing. Could your animal welfare organization use a tune-up? Humane Network can help. You can get a free 30-minute consultation to talk through your challenges and get ideas on how your organization can be more successful with less stress. From board development and fundraising to strategic planning and operations, Humane Network has got you covered. Whether you're a large or small, nonprofit or government, it's a live and thriving program led by a certified animal behavior consultant features specially designed training for shelter and clinic staff on enrichment, stress reduction, safe animal handling, and behavior modification. With Humane Network, you receive individualized advice and support customized to meet your organization's unique needs. And Humane Network can lighten your load by taking on fundraising, communications, and other tasks you struggle with. Contact Humane Network today for a free 30-minute consultation. Visit humanenetwork.org. That's humanenetwork.org. Of course you know that Dubert is the only software that helps you do transport, foster management, and fundraising all in one place. But did you know that Dubert has powerful e-commerce capabilities to let you sell your organization's products? Forget paying for Shopify or trying to list your items on Facebook. With your Dubert account, you can list your organization's products and even do auctions right from their rescue store module. Dubert manages your orders and all of the money goes directly into your PayPal, making it super easy to manage. Check out the Dubert rescue store functionality today at www.dubert.com where they make animal rescue simple. So tell me the steps that took you into behavior and fear-free. You know, how did you get involved in, in that project? Oh, I'm so happy to talk about fear-free anytime anyone wants me to talk. So I've been a certified animal behavior consultant since there have been certified animal behavior consultants, quite literally. <laughs> uh, not that I'm dating myself or anything. And, and I've spoken, I'm so grateful to say. I've spoken at veterinary conferences about the world. I speak and uh, I'm a unknown commodity out there. I've been doing what I did for a while. And when Dr. Marty Becker, who I've known forever, uh, <laughs> as he likes to point out, and I don't appreciate when he does, but he's been a good friend for a very long time. And seven years ago, I was one of the first things that I need to talk to Steve. I've got to say, I'm going to call it fear food. It's about minimizing fear, anxiety, and stress. He said, here's why you'll like it. And he was right. The focus is on enrichment in part, minimizing fear, anxiety, and stress in our own homes, which is what matters a great deal to me, as well as veterinary visits. I mean, for a very long time, I've been out there on the stump speaking about how we need to get cats to the veterinarian under medical lines. That's still true, but in part, thanks to Fear Free, that's really changing uh, because now we understand two things. First of all, it doesn't need to be that way. Cats don't need to be terrified, even if when the carrier comes out, that cat is now in another county. That doesn't have to happen. It truly doesn't. And at the clinic itself, 
That cat doesn't have to be terrified. There are tools that veterinarians and technicians, each part of this, veterinarian nurses, that they can use and implement right there to, to solve the problem or prevent it better from happening in the first place. And without that happening, veterinary visits I knew would go up and they are. And millennials and Gen Xers, you know, people like you, they get it better than any other group. I don't know why. I think I do know why, actually, but it's because they care about, I mean, we've always cared about the emotional well-being of our animals, of course. But they care in a more passionate way, and they look in a different way at the importance and of the emotional and mental health of our animals, of our companion animals. And what happens is if they have a bad experience or perceive to have a bad experience, then they're not coming back to you. And as a veterinarian, you don't want that. Besides, I have never met, never, never, never met a veterinary professional who has not gone into the business to help. You know, they don't want to see the animals. It goes for dogs too. And certainly pet parrots and ferrets and guinea pigs and hens. They don't want to see these animals terrified, of course. They could also do a better medical thorough exam if they're not. So for cats, for example, the blood work will be skewed if they're in terror. And some of them are in such terror that I believe they feel they are actually going to die. Imagine. You know, no one can explain, it's just like a little kid, very little. No one can explain why you're going to the doctor if you're a year old. You're not feeling well as a year old, right? And no one explains it to you. And then the doctor's doing all these things, poking and prodding. It's, it's a bad experience. But imagine that happening your whole life. And that's what happens. And the other thing is it grows like a snowball. So the amygdala, which is the part of the brain that you feel all this in, when that fear exists, it is uh, the size of a marble at first, but then the size of two marbles put together, then the size of four marbles put together. It grows and grows and grows upon itself. That's why the dogs become even more poor cats become even more fearful every time they carry So at first they were hesitant, then they were afraid, then they were terrified, and then they think, I am going to actually die. Literally, they make you. I'm sure, I'm sure my cats have thought that when they, you know, went into the vet over a period of time. Let's talk a little bit about trap new to return and vaccinate TNVR, which is what many people refer to trap new to return. What's been your experience and understanding and, and thoughts about it? Has it's changed over all the years? The short answer is I love it. So I was on the board of a shelter, cat shelter in Chicago. And uh, when I was on that board, they came to us with this notion of, uh, and it's one of the leading trap, neuter, vaccinate, return shelters. This notion of doing what at that time was thought to be an odd idea, but it made sense to me. There was some data. Julie Lovey at the University of Florida and others had a little bit of data on this, others being from other countries, including South Africa, I believe, is where it all began. So looked at the data, used some common sense, and also experience. So you bring in that cat that's been outdoors its entire life, his or her entire life outdoors, no real association with people except running in the other direction when you rarely saw people. And now you're bringing that cat into a shelter environment and then trying to adopt out that cat. That's what they did. And, and there were still people fighting for that at that time. And I remember the uh, 
trying to convince our it was illegal to do it in Chicago, right? Actually, illegal to do trap needle or trap needle vaccinate return injected as well. So I, I remember distinctly Dr. Dan Palmer, bless his heart, a good old Texas boy, uh, and a wonderful veterinarian who wanted to do the right thing. But he was from another generation, and he went to an Egyptian West conference. He came back and he said something like, by golly, Steve, you're right about that, maybe, that trap neuter thing you've been talking about. Uh, let's give it a go. But uh, we've got to do it this way. You know, so he had an idea about, you know, we had to have a committee and we needed veterinarians on the committee, which, of course, made sense. And, and we did it his way. And the result, and we kept track of it. So we had data. And it was, it was a very smart thing to do. And because of Chicago doing that so early, other cities followed that. You know, and this shelter that I was associated with uh, was the lead shelter doing this. And they are still considered one of the leads in the nation doing I would say one of the big challenges happening right now for folks that are out there doing TNVR, our trap neuter vaccine return, is it's challenging to get spay neuter appointments right now. I mean, right now our veterinary practices, public, private, low cost, regular, whatever type of practice you're talking about, it seems like everybody is slammed. Is that what you're hearing too? In a word, yes. Uh, the good news is that for some cities, like Chicago, the shelters themselves, some of them, a few of them, are large enough that they have their own clinics. So they're continuing to do what they always did. Now, they're, you know, what ha- what didn't happen during the pandemic, like the height of it, it's more. So now it's catch up in some places. Uh, but yeah, I've seen the same thing. Yeah, it's it's a big challenge for for many of us, and especially organizations that you know don't have a spay neuter clinic that are foster based, and they're trying to get appointments to get their kittens sure. spayed and neutered before adoption. All of those things. It's just there's this this big backlog. The other question that I have too is, I feel like, and I'm not sure if you feel this way too, but I feel like there's maybe more more cat population coming into the private practices where traditionally a a private practice would see 75% dogs and maybe 25% cats. But I feel like since we've all spent so much time with our pets, there's more awareness and that there may be more interest in those cat owners if they can afford it. And, and they feel they, you know, it's important for them to afford it, to be bringing their cats to a veterinarian. And that might also be putting on some extra pressure too, which is good. It's good, but it's challenging. Oh, I think you're absolutely right about that. You know, so I mean, a couple of reasons for it. During the pandemic, anecdotally, uh, I've heard from so many different people that I didn't know my cat did that. And, oh, I'm worried about my cat because my cat is doing that, uh, which is good in a way. There's that, but also it's what I alluded to earlier, millennials really understanding the need for veterinary visits for cats and gen experts and millennials impacting other generations, including their own parents. So they've led the way as far as cat visits and cat visits and dog visits overall before the pandemic had been somewhat on the decline for years. That had been changing, again, led by millennials. So when you see the graphs, the graphs actually begin to go up, led by those millennials for dog or cat care, but specifically for cats. They're all over it, and they totally understand and generalize the need for veterinary care for cats. 
why would it be any different? And we have data, and I could explain what people say when they don't bring in their cats to the veterinarian. But again, that is all changing. The pandemic increased that change even more. And I am thrilled about that because cats, of course, have been, as I said, under medicalized for a very long time. Playing a role in all of this, though, are cat friendly practices that are geared specifically, businesses, although we have those too. So the combination of cat exclusive cat practices on, on the rise with cat friendly practices, which include the cat exclusive practices, and then you roll in fear free to all that, and you have reason after reason after reason after reason for people to say, oh, my cat's comfortable here. Why wouldn't I do it? You know, once they do it. That and more education, hopefully from people like me, about things like how to get the cat in the or kitten classes, taking young kittens to the veterinarian for early exposure so it's no big deal for them. Uh, so all of this, I think, put in one bucket is, is making a difference for cats. For sure. And I I speak about that a lot. That's great. Before we close out, I want to just ask you a question about the radio shows that you do, the outreach, the marketing, you know, any tips that you have for folks that are listening that are part of an organization on on how to spread the word and get their information out about their programs and the work that they're doing? Well, if you have something really big to talk about, get on my radio show. I'm happy to have you on. But you have local radio wherever you live and local television. And yeah, it can be a challenge to get on depending on the market you're in, uh, but give it a try anyway. If you have something important to say, then indeed you say it. Uh, because, you know, there aren't pet radio shows everywhere. I mean, my shows, with one exception where I do a general radio show that I love doing. I talked to Lonnie Anderson two weeks ago and she looked absolutely gorgeous. I know she was on the radio, but in my mind, she did look absolutely gorgeous. And she did. So I'm at Dr. Fauci on a couple of weeks before that, you know. So I'm, I'm having fun doing general radio because I come from doing radio. But it's the pet radio shows really that I'm all about. And, you know, there aren't radio shows like that in every market. But it doesn't mean a general talk station would be adverse to someone coming on and saying, oh, my gosh, it's kitten season where we live. Consider adopting a kitten. Consider fostering a kitten. Here's how you do it on and on. So folks are interested in checking out your various shows. How would they do that? Well, first of all, I didn't give the website, I don't think, for the Every Cat Health Foundation. That's everycat.org. I mentioned Fear Free and Fear Free Happy Homes. You know, there's so many websites out there with mis and disinformation. So with our pets, especially, really, when it comes to behavior and food in particular. So fearfreehappyhomes.com is a website that I absolutely unqualified endorse because there's great information. Even when I write a story for them, that story is read over by a behaviorist. Where does, when does that happen? You know? So it's, it's, it's really peer reviewed in a sense. My website is stevedale.tv and you can go there, sign up for my free newsletter and keep up with what's going on in the country. Super. Anything else you'd like to share with our listeners today, Steve? I don't know. I, I can talk about anything. So <laughs> yes, if you want to, I can go on for two or three minutes about YouTube's at anything. So after today's conversation and say, you know, you had a group of cats in your backyard, what would you do? If I had a group of cats in my backyard? Yeah. Just if you happen to come across some cats in your backyard or your neighborhood, 
how would you respond? Would you? I, I would hope we would do, do TNR or prep me with vaccinated really, and step it up for the benefit of those cats. Now, if there's any friendly cats among that group, they go to the shelter and uh, adopt it out. But all the cats really go to the shelter ultimately because they're uh, they're vaccinated and they stayed and they're neutered. And then they're put right back out where they were. Also, we have a program in Chicago. It's called the Working Cats Program or Cats at Work Program. Sorry, Cats at Work. And the cats do work. They're employed and their job is to be there. And by being there, the rats aren't anymore. So they're put in certain parts of the city where there's a rat problem in Chicago. That's most parts of the city, but where they're requested to go. And generally, they don't hunt the rats, maybe young rats, but just their very presence. The rats disperse. They find new real estate because their value in real estate just went down from their perspective. So they find somewhere else to go. And the cats do just fine there, you know, wherever they happen to be put. And that's a benefit for the city in a lot of different ways. It's a humane way to deal with the rat issue. And it's also a more successful way. Just like we've tried everything else. We've tried shooting cats, poisoning cats, doing all these things. That how, how long have cats been outdoors associating with us? A millennia. And nothing previously has worked. This works. And it's a humane and eco-friendly, if you will, way to do it. And it's the same thing as far as the cats and the rats. It's it's a humane way to do it. You're not leaving them out poison, for example. That oftentimes doesn't work. Cat, rats, believe it or not, a rat will smell why that rat died and won't eat the same thing. They're that smart. So... Poisons don't often work completely anyway. But aside from that, what if a kid gets into it? What if a family dog or a family cat gets into it? So, or other wildlife. So this all prevents that from happening. That's great. Steve, I want to thank you so much for joining me today and being a guest on the show. And I hope we'll have you on again in the future. Anytime. Thank you. That's it for this week. Please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. We love to hear what you think, and a five-star review really helps others find the show. You can also join the conversation with listeners, cat caretakers, and me on Facebook and Instagram. And don't forget to hit follow or subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, YouTube, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss a single show. Thanks for listening, and thank you for everything that you do to help create a safe and healthy world for cats. Did you join us for Diversity Day or Fundraising Day? We'd like to take this opportunity to shout out some of our sponsors who made these online educational opportunities possible. Vets Pets. Find out how Vets Pets is keeping happiness in motion at VetsPets.com. That's V-E-T-Z-P-E-T-Z.com. And Humane Network. Learn more about their consulting services and certificate programs at HumaneNetwork.org. If you or your organization is interested in sponsoring the podcast or an online event like the upcoming online cat conference or online kitten conference, email stacy at communitycatspodcast.com for details.